Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our first discussion comes from our archives and was recorded in July of 2014 between our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, and Gregory Clark. Dr. Clark is a professor of economic history at UC Davis, where he focuses on long-run economic growth, the role of human capital in the economy, and social mobility. We hope you enjoyed this talk, and check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Andrew Mazzoni, president of the Henry George School of Social Science. Smart Talk will present a series of discussion with leading economists around the world. These talks promise to be compelling, controversial, and always thought-provoking. Today's guest is Dr. Gregory Clark. Dr. Clark is a professor of economics at the University of California at Davis. His controversial theories regarding economic growth and the wealth of nations challenge the argument that rigid class structures have eroded in favor of social equality. At least that's part of his argument. Dr. Clark has written two books, Farewell to Arms and The Sun Also Rises. Dr. Clark, welcome to Smart Talk. It's great to be here. I propose, Dr. Clark, to cover the two books you've written in sequence. I just want to comment to the audience that they're two fabulous books. In fact, if I, I had to recommend the three books for educated people to read, the best three in the last 10 years, Two of them would be yours, Farewell to Arms and The Sun Also Rises. I would have to include Piketty in that, in that trilogy simply because of the facts that he's amassed over a long period of time that at least illustrate some of the problems. But your two books, and we'll take Farewell to Arms first and The Sun Also Rises, bear on what I consider very, very important issues in, in social science. Farewell to Arms discusses essentially how we got to the Industrial Revolution, which triggered off modern growth. And I propose to dis discuss that first with you. Then we'll follow with The Sun Also Rises, which is somewhat controversial in, in, in social science, although in my mind, I think you made a clear case for the case that you attempted to make. But we'll discuss that in terms of elites and, and the future and, and so forth. So we start off with Farrell Toms. Essentially, <clears throat> you've got the most nuanced uh, description of how the Industrial Revolution started. Now, as, as Georgists, we're probably not so concerned about how things got started. We're concerned about who gets what after things got started in the Industrial Revolution. Right? Who gets the money? But we, at least we have to understand how things got to be the way they are. And I think that your nuanced exposition is the best that we've read. And, uh, and I'll be the foil for you in this sense that uh, our view of the Industrial Revolution is probably a classic and simple one. We would argue that, you know, mankind basically chugged along at uh, essentially one or two times uh, output per man, and then somehow in the in the middle centuries, 1500s, 1400s, uh, the old world went on an exploration uh, uh, spree. Uh, they they developed better sailing tools, better navigation instruments, uh, better cannons, better better ways to use them, and it simply went around and conquered the world that was defenseless. Basically, from North and South America, it took a lot of resources, brought them back to Europe. And because of that, the standard of living jacked up a little bit, and because of that, you could have, after, after the Enlightenment and 
scientific investigation and the English Revolution, which protected property rights better, that mix somehow encouraged entrepreneurs and inventors to finally develop the techniques to trigger off the in Industrial Revolution. And I, I, I suppose the classic uh, statement on that would be the English experimentation with the steam engine, along with the coal and iron proximity in England, and along, along with the fact that there were uh, nascent industries, putting out industries and in, in, in textiles, which were becoming machine driven. The natural thing would be to link up steam, uh, steam engines as a powertrain and explode the productivity and the rest is history. Now you won't accept that as essential answer for the Industrial Revolution. And it's your, your nuanced work, I think, is, is, is the issues that we'd like you to talk about first. Yeah, the important thing is the Industrial Revolution is the defining point in human history, but it's also one of the most mysterious events because it's very difficult to link to a lot of the elements that you've talked about here. So, for example, who were the great uh, colonizers? It was the Spanish, the Portuguese. Their living standards did not improve in any way in the period leading up to the Industrial Revolution. But you could argue the fact that they spent the money buying the products, let's say, from England and France. Uh, in effect, they sacrificed their wealth, <clears throat> eroded their manufacturing possibilities, in effect, feeding into uh, an English strength. But go ahead. Yes. So, so the book, my book then says, well, there's, there's no very clear link uh, to the colonial activities. And then the, the second puzzle is that um, the, the, the explosion of productivity that the Industrial Revolution represented occurred in a society, England, that was essentially unchanged for several hundred years institutionally in the period leading up to the Industrial Revolution. Uh, Far into the past, England had fairly stable property rights, uh, fairly limited government, uh, fairly open uh, market. And, and the puzzle is to understand uh, why finally uh, the efficiency of industries really began to expand at a steady rate. And, and that's the thing that, that characterizes uh, the modern world. So uh, just take a naive view and say, let's say the steam engine was a fortuitous development uh, with the coal mines and, and a powertrain that now <clears throat> multiplied energy and, 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 and argue that that random explosion was set off in an ideal institutional environment and, and, and then everything followed from that. Because if you plot the use of carbon fuel against productivity from that point on, there's a perfect correlation, of course. And, uh, but you want to comment on that because you make the argument that the stage was set really hundreds of years before in the institutional and stable structure of England. And I would argue maybe there were other countries that had similar, similar setups, close enough that how can you separate the English from the rest of the possibilities? Um, so, so let me uh, step back a little bit and say uh, what the book argues is that uh, the institutional basis of the Industrial Revolution had been set in place probably a thousand, maybe several thousand years earlier. And that there isn't really the sudden institutional changes that would explain it occurring in the 18th century. And that instead, what was actually happening was that people were changing uh, culturally and also actually genetically. 
in the long pre-industrial era and becoming different kinds of economic agents. And that we can get plenty of evidence that people were becoming more patient, less violent, uh, more cooperative, uh, harder working. And that this was a, a general force that was occurring in stable pre-industrial societies. But it was a force that's particularly evident in a society like England for at least 600 years before the Industrial Revolution. No other society, in your opinion, uh, emulated that? Oh, no, I, I actually believe that other Northern European societies were going through the, exactly these same processes. And so it's uh, it, one thing I have to, to admit with the book is that while it says I can, you know, we can explain why an industrial revolution became more likely over time, it's still very hard to explain why England would be the particular location uh, of the industrial revolution. And, and, and really, that's not something the book can particularly successfully do. All, all, it, all it can say is that Northern European society in general was becoming more fertile ground for modern economic growth. And that there is a difference between Europe, for example, and other societies in terms of how strong the pressures were on the population in terms of the success demographically of those who were also doing very well economically. That that's, that's, it forces stronger in Europe, though recent evidence in China says that that was also operating in pre-industrial China. Yeah, that would, uh, I can't remember the scholar who, uh, who, who makes the argument that it's uh, basically uh, China emulated Northern Europe up until, uh, you know, uh, around the time of the Industrial Revolution. And he would argue that uh, why, why Europe rather than uh, China? In fact, China, the, the innovation was greater in China than in, in Europe. Well, well, the innovation, certainly if you go back to 1400, uh, China is ahead of Europe in terms of innovation, in terms of economic systems. But you can see in 1800 that there's still a clear difference between Europe and China. China looks like Europe in the Middle Ages by then, in terms of things like literacy levels, interest rates. Uh, it, it looks like it's heading in the same direction, but it looks like an earlier version of Europe. And so I, I think socially, you can actually see clear distinctions between Japan, China, and Europe at the point of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, and, and so the argument of the book is it's, it's that social dynamic that's very important, and that admittedly, it's very hard to say why, why was it not just was it England, but was it also just Northern England that had the Industrial Revolution? That still uh, awaits uh, further explanation. And, and there's where the element of accident that you mentioned may just play a role. There may be just irreducible historical accidents that come into play. But, but one of the other things the book emphasizes is that England did not gain much of an advantage on its competitors in the Industrial Revolution period. The benefits of the Industrial Revolution had as, almost as much effect in northern France, in Germany, in uh, the Netherlands, as they had in England. Let me, let me interject there. I mean, uh, the argument may have been the standard of living uh, was spread very quickly in northern Europe from, let's say, the advent of uh, steam engine uh, technology, but it, it is true <clears throat> that even if uh, English manufacturers did not uh, benefit because of competition, they, they, they were able to finance and maintain a fleet. They were able to dominate the uh, colonies 
create a huge empire that gave them surplus. Uh, there was no end to the good things that, are, that accrued to England, even if their manufacturers uh, basically had a lot of the profits competed, competed away. Nonetheless, they were able to build tremendous estates, become rentiers, and so forth. So there was surplus uh, thrown off by the English industrialists, even though prices were low. They were able to spread around the world, they were able to take a dominant position. Well, several things I want to emphasize about the Industrial Revolution. So you've mentioned the importance of steam technology. Uh, It's actually the innovations in textiles, which were independent of steam engines initially, that really drove the economy uh, forward. And as I say, what's interesting about those innovations is that they could have been made any time in the last 500 years. They could have been made in China. They could have been made in Japan. Uh, And so... Uh, it, it turns out, as I say, it's really textiles that drive things forward. The way that Britain's uh, trade and empire expansion helps is mainly to create a market overseas for these products. But the other thing I emphasize in the book is, astonishingly, very few of the industrialists in England made anything out of the Industrial Revolution. Industrialization in England is very different from, say, America in the late 19th century or even America now where great fortunes were not made in this period. It's a very competitive form of industrialization. The beneficiaries are the consumers and the workers. And interestingly, from the Georgia's perspective, what you see is a very significant decline in the share of income that's going to property in this period and a very substantial rise in the share of income that's going to labor. And so the Industrial Revolution is a benign institution as it occurs in England in the sense of its distributional uh, impact. But but I think my emphasis would be that um, the the colonialism, imperialism, power, uh, theft actually played modest roles in the Industrial Revolution. It's a revolution of the middle class that is uh, mainly generating social benefits. Okay, let me argue this then. Let's extend to the American colonies. It's uh, by 1800, uh, Hamilton argues that uh, America would be better off to industrialize. And it has some unusual conditions, different than England, to industrialize. And in a a space of 70 years, it it eclipses England in in wealth and productivity. And uh, Americans were the highest paid wage earners in the world. Any comments? on the difference between the American experience and the English experience. Basically, the Americans set up a protectionist system against English manufacturers and turned it to great advantage. Any comments from your perspective on that? I think that uh, recent research is actually showing very strongly that already by 1800, America is the richest society in the world. Uh, I think that that wealth largely derived from the enormous amount of land per American, but was also associated with a very high level of productivity in American society. I think the the tariff system and the exclusion of manufactured goods by America did not contribute to its uh, subsequent growth, uh, and uh, that uh, America was going to do well, however, economic uh, system was arranged, uh, and uh, the, um, uh, that that 
was the basis of American prosperity, as I say, was land, uh, but also very high levels of social competence uh, in American society. But that's, of course, uh, counterintuitive. I mean, without the industrialization and the machine component, uh, no matter how high American productivity was without machines, it would, it would dwarf that productivity once you had the int introduction of, of machinery. Of course, America had a, had a slave society in the South, which also was independently wealthy simply because of the value of, of, of slaves. But the fact is that American manufacturing caught up rapidly with England, and England had a world market, and the United States essentially only had a, a continental market. Any, any comments on that? It's, it's absolutely correct that if you look at things like cotton textiles, that by the late 19th century, American productivity is actually even higher than in uh, the UK, right? But uh, America is not competitive internationally in textiles because its, its costs are too high, its wages are so high that it can't compete uh, with the British. The, the American system would argue that it would overcome that high wages with super productivity. You don't agree with that? Oh, no. I mean, because in the world, in the world market in this period, uh, America is certainly very productive. But since its wages are at least 50 percent higher than those of Britain in the international market, uh, the British still uh, win out. Uh, and uh, all I can say is that um, uh, another thing that's actually costing America is that uh, it doesn't import machinery, the textile machinery from England. And English textile machinery is the cheapest in the world. Uh, and so it's, it's not at all clear that the tariff system really was a foundation okay. of American success. I mean, I like to think more America was a dynamic, uh, aggressive, uh, institutionally stable economic uh, system. And it was going to do well whether they had tariffs or they didn't have tariffs in this period. And how do you account for America able to achieve that and still have a slave society embedded in it? I mean, wouldn't the institutional structure be bifurcated in some way that would have been limiting? Well, I, I think uh, studies of the South have shown that it was an astonishing slave society in the sense of the very high productivity that it was achieving. Uh, the Southern agricultural system under slavery is very dynamic uh, technologically. Uh, it was ultimately a self-destructive slave society in the South, in, but mainly because it discouraged the emigration of uh, free uh, whites into the South, and it eventually made it an unattractive destination for the people who would later kind of be the wellspring of the American Industrial Revolution. And so in that sense, uh, slavery was self-defeating in the end because you can't attract uh, uh, people with talent and ability uh, into uh, such a society. And, and in the end, slavery was sowing the seeds of its own destruction in the South. So, Dr. Clark, we've, we've kind of got to the uh, takeoff point, let's say, of England and America uh, jointly, and essentially those two powers are going to dictate uh, uh, the composition and the direction of the world uh, from that point onward. Uh, any, co any comments on, on the, the joint growth of both uh, countries and the fact that uh, uh, the competitors, let's say Germany and ultimately Japan, joined the fray and basically the pressures of industrialization of those three parties start culminating in, in pressures of war? Uh, maybe we can go back to the, um, the English and American takeoff. Well, that's a, I'm going to assume that 
they kind of, you know, it's an Anglo takeoff. They're reaching uh, great levels of productivity. And you, you discuss uh, the drivers in, in productivity. And I think your, your description and analysis is one of the best I've seen. If you want to, you know, whether it's capital, whether it's labor productivity, or whether it's that reason, the solo residual that is, is the ultimate uh, uh, driver. Could you comment on, on, on that, on those points? Right. Uh, I'll be happy to, to comment on this. And so after the Industrial Revolution, the factor that seems to determine the success of nations is essentially how uh, good their productivity is, how efficient their use of knowledge is. And factors like capital and land then become relatively unimportant in the economic system as we move into the 20th century. And capital essentially is just adjusting internationally to the profit opportunities now in this new international economy. But it wasn't clear, I, I guess, until Solo's time, where, or I think maybe there were a few others, that started to account for, quote, the residual. That was in, in the 50s before anyone really thought it was something else driving other than, than just capital. Uh, your comment on that, on that point? Oh, oh yes. Uh, as an economist, uh, I have to say that we have, a, we have a very embarrassing science because the facts, the, the factor that drives uh, living standards, that drives economic growth, is one that we have essentially no explanation for. It's occurring from outside the economic system. What's happening is every year for successful economies, they become about 1% more efficient in ways that are unpredictable, unexplainable, uh, not attributable to specific investments. Uh, that's the dominating fact of modern economic growth. And ever since Solo realized that, economics has struggled to somehow incorporate this into the economic system and come up with an economic explanation of this kind of dominating fact of modern growth. And, and similarly, societies like India that have lagged enormously far behind in economic competition, again, it's their inability to achieve this efficiency advance that the successful economies are achieving that lies at the root of their problems. Okay, you have a wonderful example in your book about India and, and its factory technology basically being the same as Western, but unable to achieve Western pro productivities. I think this is a key, key element and a, and a, and a wonderful a revelation in your book that I haven't seen elsewhere. Why don't you comment on the fact that with the same technology, the same ideas, the ability to, to copy intimately, why India, for example, could not emulate Western productivity? They had everything going for it. Oh, yeah, that's one of the, the great mysteries of the modern world. And so in the, in the 19th century, Karl Marx, commenting on British imperialism in India, said that British imperialism would sow the destruction of British domination because it would lead to the export of railroads, factories, all of the other infrastructure of the modern economy to India, and that eventually, under free trade and British doctrine, uh, with low wages in India, uh, Britain would be driven out of international markets. But what we've seen ever since then is that with identical 
techniques, identical factories taken to these countries that are not succeeding, these poor countries, what is astonishing is that people are not able to replicate the productivity of the advanced uh, societies. Uh, and, and, and in ways that are highly mysterious. I mean, uh, we've spent a lot of time, I've even been to Indian textile factories to look at their operations. And it's amazing that it often will require, you know, five times the number of workers to carry out the functions of these factories as in advanced uh, economies, even when you have the identical machinery in the advanced economies. Why then, going back to your explanation right. of the precursor of the Industrial Revolution, why is it that it, in effect it becomes a cultural difference in enabling productivity to increase? Why is it that, uh, that in India can't, even in islands of pockets of India, emulate uh, American or British or German uh, product productivity. Why? Uh, why would that be so 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 difficult? Because I think your explanation is is brilliant, and I, I think it's a key part of your book. Because uh, perhaps the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, ought to ought to really follow your argument. But go ahead. I'll let you uh, elaborate on that. We can easily identify what the problem is in these plants, but to actually say fundamentally. Why is that problem occurring? It turns out to be very, very difficult. And for example, in, in the 1920s in India, their textile industry was under a lot of threat from the new Japanese industry, which was emulating the West, which was achieving high levels of productivity. They knew what their problem was. They called in international experts. They had Americans, they had British, they had different entrepreneurial groups in the industry. Everyone knew exactly what the problem was that you needed to somehow get an Indian textile factory that could achieve the same productivity as a British one. There were 400 of such plants in India. There was not a single one that was able to equal the productivity of the English industry. And with all of the analysis, with all of the discussion, it never ever emerged exactly what was going on. It was something about the relationship between the labor force and the management uh, but it was never, and, and even having looked over all of these documents, have studied all of the record, it's still mysterious to us exactly why you couldn't come up with a contract with the workers that would allow you to kind of equal uh, the productivity that's found elsewhere. Neoclassical economics would say it's a no-brainer to come up and devise contracts to equalize and, and So that. one of the things that I, I, I try and emphasize in my book is, in some sense, we moved from a world which was kind of understandable in economic terms before 1800 to a new world which is actually very difficult uh, to comprehend uh, in simple economic terms, right? Because things are happening in terms mm -hmm. of the efficiency of different countries that we have no underlying economic theory for, right? We always fall back in economics on the idea that everyone is the same and it's just a matter of finding the right economic incentives, the right economic structure and all the world will be wealthy. All right, let's, let's, let's go back to cultural, cultural norms or uh, cult, cultural efficacy. Uh, let's assume that American cultural e efficacy, however it got to be that, is the, or German you could argue, uh, is the ultimate productivity enhancers. Why can't all societies emulate those cultures? But, Interestingly, you see in these societies like India, 
that there there is a tendency now to move towards kind of Western cultural norms, right? And you see in consumption patterns, in entertainment, in uh, many other ways, uh, this this kind of imitation of of Western culture. Uh, but India still struggles. Uh, and to to give a, a, a simple example of this, I mean, India has a relatively successful software industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you would think that that would be an area where you don't require a lot of capital, where uh, wages are, are a dominating element of the story, uh, where India could just simply take over. I mean, why can the California software industry still survive or the British software industry in the face of competition from a low-wage competitor where capital is not that important and where the product can be shipped internationally at the press of a button? Uh, my brother works in a software company in London, and they were instructed to hire a bunch of Indian programmers and replace their programmers in London. And he said, well, yes, you can get the software written in India, but it, it costs about one third as much in terms of wages, but you get about one third the product. Okay, well, let me let me t- take off on that. Um, I'm, I'm a, a refugee from American manufacturing. I retired as a CEO of a Fortune 500 company uh, uh, a a while back. And of course, the secret of American excess, in my opinion at that time, was the learning by doing effects and the ability to keep improving learning by doing. And and we kept the manufacturing force in America uh, employed, learning more and more about uh, less and less in our particular industries so that you couldn't break apart that productivity by importing cheaper labor necessarily because it was all of a piece. Everything worked together, everyone innovated together, everyone was intimately uh, aware of instantly innovations within the firm. All of a sudden, uh, there's a decision made to outsource, which would be inefficient from a manufacturing point of view. The United States decides, we can go into that reasoning, to outsource and they go to a place like China and start splitting up its manufacturing, uh, low end to China and keeping its high end, and I would argue losing uh, autonomous innovation, but yet the Chinese are able to to take that and build on that, and without the background of the learning by doing of 200 years of Britain and the United States, copy almost successfully and move up the value chain. How would you explain that, or or am I overstating the case at that point? Uh, I think when you look at uh, the, the countries that are now competing to enter the international market in manufacturing, what is interesting about the modern world is that if you went back to 1500, the societies that were at the forefront technologically were, you know, it was Europe and it was uh, China. Uh, and what is interesting in some sense is that the old world order seems to be beginning to reestablish itself that uh, now as countries look to enter uh, modern uh, manufacturing, modern industry, it's those with the longest history of stable institutional structures that seem able to compete best. Uh, And uh, it it looks like the, the long history of these societies is somehow helping them in terms of modern cooperation, modern production and modern manufacturing and so it's an, actually an interesting return to the idea that, you know, we are shaped 
by very long histories in societies, and younger societies have a harder time competing in the modern world than older societies. And that in some sense, as I say, we're, we're returning to, to a familiar pattern. There, was, there seemed to be a period of disruption, a, a surprising period where China was kind of out of the world economy. Uh, but if we look, say, 50 years from now, the world in terms of, of its location of advanced societies, advanced production, will look very similar to the world of 1500. Okay. What would you say about Indian uh, institutions relative to... Chinese institutions in terms of stability and, and, and so forth. Why couldn't you make the case for India as being a, as stable as China? That would be an interesting comment. Uh, India is an interesting case. I mean, it, it's an old society like China. Uh, it's struggling to grow, though. I mean, its growth rates are significantly lower than those in China. And interestingly, when you, when you look at the history of, of India, it, it never was at the or, or it was never at the forefront of technological advance uh, in the 2000 years uh, of history before the industrial revolution it was always uh, either china or europe uh, or or the middle east that were the the centers of the of the world economy in these in this early period and so uh, i it, and it turns out we know very little about the history of india uh, before 1800, and that again is a reflection of the nature of the society, that it's advanced societies that leave documents, that leave records. Uh, and so I would say that there is an interesting difference between even Chinese history and, and Indian history, uh, but India is something that we can say very little about what its early history was. And so it's hard to say, is that mattering in terms of modern economic competition? Okay, well, let's go back to growth in American style. Uh, American, let's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to argue that uh, America uh, outsources uh, a lot of its manufacturing. It's, it's taken up almost a Roman position of controlling, let's say, military and finance and, is content, and, and energy, in effect. And on those three legs, are able to maintain wealth and continue to grow and basically make everybody else uh, fall in line. Would you say that's a fair statement now? And and how does uh, how does that impact the possibility of America's productivity increasing or perhaps uh, stabilizing and, and, and plateauing? And other more dynamic societies will catch up with America. Technically speaking, the United States seems to be uh, content with a military and financial and energy domination now that it's uh, it's a superpower. Any comments on that? Uh I think the, the prospects for America are actually uh, very good. Uh, in, in terms of the efficiency of the economy, uh, the Europeans actually have already caught up with America. America has higher incomes than these other societies because we work harder uh, than societies like Europe. It's, it's all a matter of how many hours we put in. But uh, America has one big advantage, which is that it is now pulling in from all around the globe the most talented people from a whole variety of societies. And so if you look at modern America, what is the, the super elite within American society now are Indians, uh, Indians from the Indian subcontinent. Uh, and uh, we, we're importing from China, from India, from uh, Africa, uh, from Egypt, uh, people of enormous talent 
Uh, and, uh, you know, so America will have, uh, in, in terms of, of the, the, the kind of the, the skilled technicians, skilled scientists, uh, it will have a pool of talent to draw upon that will be unrivaled uh, across other societies uh, for the next 50 or 100 years. But the only thing that you fear about this growth in America will be that America is also attracting uh, from Central America, immigrants who come under very different circumstances, often who come illegally, and where you actually attract uh, people who are at the bottom end of those societies, people who are struggling within those societies. And so the one thing that would be, I think, that America has to fear in the future is developing a highly unequal society. That early immigration in America tended to lead to equalization uh, now I think you're going to have a super successful society in the United States, but already here in California, we see differences in living conditions and in income that are reminiscent of Mississippi in terms of the difference. What if I argue, what if I took the argument, essentially, which I do, and essentially say that today America is essentially two countries, and I'm not saying the two countries and two societies in, uh, let's say, uh, the traditional sense that it's talking about. Well, let's argue that if we looked at Boston, New York, and Washington, and we looked at the elites in, in that corridor, and we looked at the uh, uh, high-tech industries, we look at the military, we look at the finance, and we look at that as a, as a, as a center which has, uh, has links to all the various hotspots in the world in terms of kind of a... Uh, uh, localized economy with tentacles and all productivity spots, and we call that country A. Then the rest of the uh, the rest of the country sends its elite kids to uh, to the New York country, and in effect turns the rest of America into kind of a Brazil America. What would your comments be on that? Uh, I think they, uh, I would agree that America is becoming a significantly more polarized society. Uh, and um, uh, within America, there, there are uh, now appearing uh, differences in living standards that uh, uh, we haven't seen in the earlier society. Uh, and as I say, in terms of if we measure, you know, the productivity of the American economy, the average income per capita, I think the outlook looks very good. But if you compare us to, say, a society like Sweden, where there haven't been these polarizing forces, uh, I think there is a, a fear that that uh, the kind of the, the America that people valued in the past uh, may not be the America that you're going to see in the future. Uh, and that, yes, I mean, we will become more like uh, South America. Uh, but, but as I say, I mean, these South American societies still function perfectly well. Uh, but they, they certainly have these much greater chasm between uh, the upper classes and the lower uh, classes in those societies. Uh, and, and that seems to be the, the dynamic within modern America. And so in terms of things like, you know, uh, do we have to worry that America will lose manufacturing, that America will lose its, its, uh, its comparative advantage in some industries? Don't think problem because now, you know, finance, uh, technolo computer technology, uh, software, these are all areas uh, where you could perfectly well make a living.
living in the modern world without ever having to do manufacturing. Uh, but the, the problem, I think, will be uh, also uh, our technological developments going to now lead to the fact that unskilled labor will have very little value to the economic system. Uh, and that America will have large communities which can supply only unskilled labor and that that labor will essentially have almost zero economic value. Seeing some of the trends that you, we've uh, discussed with the United States, I suppose we could, we could see that in Europe, but let's not go there. Let's just talk about the outlook for generalized and increasing productivity in, in terms of creating unequal uh, distributions of wealth, uh, using elite people more and more to man those high productivity areas, and the kind of stresses that eventually will put on the environment basically where we fall back in on ourselves, since we don't seem to have any social mechanism uh, to, to deal with that. So if uh, you would have some comments on where technology is going, what kind of stress it will put on uh, society from an, env an environmental point of view, and, uh, and what will happen because of the differential growth rates in some areas being much faster than others, and it, and it looks like we can't close that gap. If you had to take a little future look Based off the trends you point out in your book, what would you, where would you go with this? Um, so the interesting thing is my, my book was finished essentially in 2006. And the interesting thing was that from the Industrial Revolution up until about 2000, growth seemed to be extraordinarily benign. So uh, this mechanization of processes had actually led to an increase in demand for unskilled labor. The main beneficiaries of the Industrial Revolution up until within the last 20 or 30 years had actually been unskilled workers. It had also led to a decline in the share of property income in societies like England over time. That was actually an equalizing force. Uh, further, uh, growth had not, had not put a lot of pressure on land and resources. And so we had actually seen a dramatic decline in the share of income that was going to the owners of land and resources. And so, so these were not a constraint on growth uh, in the modern world. And so uh, it seemed that God smiled uh, at the point that he allowed the Industrial Revolution in terms of the outlook for humanity and the outlook for having societies that were relatively equal, where everyone was being pulled up, and where the, 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 the traditional constraints uh, had been lifted. And now we seem to have entered a much more troubled time. Uh, it's still the case that land is relatively abundant in the modern world, but now the, the fossil fuels clearly constitute a, a major problem. Uh, global warming is a reality. Uh, it's going to have profound impact on the lives of people in future, the only way to counter that is to actually enter a world where, again, land and resources become tightly constrained, become much more of a constraint on economic growth, and also potentially uh, lead to uh, certain assets becoming highly valued again, and, and again leading to uh, inequality. And so that's the first thing we, we have to worry about as we move into the future, that the, that the land constraint will have effectively become binding again on economic growth. Well, we were, let me just interject there. Right. We as Georgists or Neo-Georgists would argue, if you simply tax the monopoly created on resource appropriation, 
and you basically use that to fund governments, that a lot of the pressures you're talking about would not arise. Uh, you understand the Georgia's argument, essentially. Okay. Oh, absolutely. But, but I think now I, I think what the Georgia sh- should say is, where, what would be the great income source that could fund governments in future? It would be the tax on carbon dioxide, <laughs> right? And, and that actually could be the modern kind of foundation of, of government because it's a tax that would hurt the economy, it would actually benefit the, the, the economy, and it would be a tax uh, that uh, would be, uh, as, as I say, collected for, for the social good and could be a major foundation of income uh, for future societies. But that's going to be one constraint that we now face. A second uh, worry is that in the last 20 or 30 years, there's clear sign that the nature of technological advance is such that unskilled labor may never again have a value to the economy that even equals its value 10 or 20 years ago. And that there will be a class of future economies who essentially are unemployable at any wage that society would think appropriate, right? And and that could support families, could support family life. And where there are going to be increasing demands on government to fund a new kind of leisure class in society, which is people that the economy simply will have very little value for all, sorry, that that, that will have very little value to the economic system. A Tea Party man would say, more government, we can't have that. Any comments to the Tea Partyers who would would just be apoplectic over what you said? The trouble is that this, this possibility, and it's just a possibility, this possibility conflicts with the whole foundation of much of American political life, which is founded on the idea that people should look after themselves and that people just took care of themselves, then a lot of social problems would disappear. But what you're actually seeing in modern societies is now increasing number of people who essentially become disabled uh, and get payments for disabilities quite early in life and who will never work again in modern societies, and that uh, it's a social reality that uh, we may have to adapt to. And and along with this kind of decline in value of unskilled labor, if it occurs, this dystopia, we also have to fear that certain high ability people will command an enormous premium in a future economy. Well, we'll leave that discussion, we'll leave that discussion for, for another time on that, which will be your second book. But taking you, uh, taking this particular trend, where does that leave the marginal continents, never mind marginal workers in the industrial societies, where does that leave South America, Asia, uh, and significant parts of Asia and Africa? Where does it leave them in this uh, dystopia? Well, uh, the, the, uh, the, the problem that we could face is that modern manufacturing and modern production has become increasingly precise. And it involves many steps that have to be carried out exactly and carefully. The labor forces of Africa, of the poor parts of South America and of India, that's not an ability and a skill that they have uh, been trained in. And so again, the fear would be 
that a continent like Africa with extraordinarily low wages will find great difficulty in entering into production in a new international economy where the important elements of production are really about following instructions precisely, carefully, uh, faithfully. Uh, and, and so again, at the international level, the widening gap between rich and poor societies could be maintained, again, as a kind of dystopic uh, worry about the future. Uh, and as I say already, you, you see phenomena such as you know, African countries importing Chinese immigrants to engage in manufacturing production, even though wages in China are two or three times higher than they are in Africa. Uh, and so you actually, uh, as I say, the, 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 the worry is that uh, in the earlier economy in the 19th century, there was lots of high value activity that unskilled labor forces throughout the world could do. It's not at all clear that in the, the, the new world of modern scientific production systems, that there will be any easy entry for low-wage economies uh, into the international economy. I'm going to stop you right there with one comment. Are you going to write a book on, on this particular important trend uh, in and of itself? Uh, I've actually been thinking about uh, you know, what to, to work on next. And so I, I was actually thinking about writing a book which would be called Dystopias, which would talk about all of the, the fears we had in the past about where the economic system might lead and, and the lucky accidents that kept us from getting to these dystopias and now the fears in future that are out of our control about the nature of modern technology, modern production, modern interactions and, how, and what kinds of worlds we, we could have to fear uh, uh, as we go along. But that's not a commitment, it's just an idea. No, no, but I would say, I would say right. to you, it would be a perfect counterpoint to Piketty's work and a great compliment to your work. So I think I think if you're going to do something, I would recommend you please do that. <laughs> well, it could be an interesting project, yeah. Well, Dr. Clark, let's go into uh, The Sun Also Rises. Uh, it's sort of a, a controversial work, although I think its science is impeccable, and I think uh, the implications really have to be faced and, and, and dealt with. Essentially, families, and, and not necessarily nations, but families within nations, once they maintain a place, whether it's a high-level place or a low-level place, for one reason or another, tend to stay at that status for long periods of time. And I believe your, your, your drift factor is a correlation 0.80 around the world, which means that there's a constant long-term drift before... Uh, that changes due to intermarriage uh, and so forth. But the, if so, the implications are that essentially elites are a stable class, and along with the trends we, do, we talked about in Farewell to Arms, uh, what do you think the implications are of that? In other words, if uh, elites persist, although they can, they can change over, over time, if per proceeds, elites do persist, and they maintain the high ground of especially a bifurcating society due to technology. What, do you, what is your conclusions on the effects of that? Would they, would they voluntarily become more democratic because the system is going to head to an explosive end or, or that somehow this is a problem that isn't a problem or would correct itself? Oh, I, well, I have to start with a correction, okay. which is that 
one of the things that the book finds, and, and, it, and it finds this by studying long-term social mobility, by, by looking at the status of particular surnames, right. and, and that way we can actually study, in some cases, 30 generations of status in somewhere like England. What the book finds is that there is always a move of elites towards average status, but the process is extraordinarily slow, right? And so uh, it takes maybe 300 years for families that are very elite to finally become average. And so there's been different reactions to this. I mean, my reaction is to say, so it shows that we in the end live in a world of complete equality. <laughs> uh, other people say 300 years, you're kidding me. Uh, that's as good as having just stable class structure in a society. Uh, and so, so as I say, the, but the, the interesting finding of the book then is that there is this mobility, but that it's a very slow rate. And then the other shocking finding seems to be that it's all a function of what's transmitted within families, yes. that societies have no ability to change this rate of social mobility. And, and in particular, we can look at cases like communist China. Yes where you can have a revolution that's designed to uproot and exterminate the upper class. And now, 60 years after that revolution, that class is still uh, overrepresented amongst academic elites, amongst doctors, amongst Communist Party members uh, in modern China. Uh, and so... But you found that basically in every society when you strip away the contingencies, that's the case. Yes. And, and medieval England, the rate of social mobility was just as high as it is in the modern dynamic capitalist economy of England or America. And so the question then is, what's the social implication of this? And here is something where, as I say, I've ended up disagreeing with a lot of commentators on the book, because my interpretation is that this is actually due to the actual transmission of abilities and that this is actually showing that the world is a fairer place than people thought right and and it's just an accident of people's lineage that some people have a lot of ability and some people inherit much lower levels of ability eventually it's all going to mix up it's all going to be you know uh, you know in the long run uh, everyone's got an equal chance in society but in the very long run uh, other people have thought of this as, as one of the most dismal findings that you could possibly get because it has this very... Right. Well, let me yep. take a layman's... Okay. Let me take a layman's uh, view of that. Okay. The, the argument, I think, is Im impeccable. I mean, the statistics and everything really can't be refuted. So the conclusions are either painful or not painful, depending on how, how you look at it. But let's argue in... In, uh, up until the time of the Industrial Revolution, uh, things were stable and uh, slow to change anyway. So that these, if these elites were in charge, let's say, uh, you, you wouldn't observe anything but those elites always being in charge. But let's go to today, whereas take from uh, the year 2000 in the United States, where there was a huge explosion of wealth. Uh, due to some, you know, due to the financial contingencies that occurred, and a lot of huge fortunes were made, and not necessarily by the old elite. And, and in effect, these kinds of things kind of may overturn 
the, the drift in the eliteness. And it's true, some of the elites are part of the Wall Street uh, gang, but also there's a lot of nouveau, rich, and new people in, in, in Wall Street who are making an enormous amounts of money, in effect, can neutralize the... the go ahead. Yeah, uh, but, but based on the experience elsewhere, so I haven't really studied the, the, the developments in the U.S. in the past 10 years, but based on the experience elsewhere, the people who are going to be making fortunes, these big sums of money in modern America, in finance, in uh, computers, in uh, other areas, they tend to be very strongly drawn from groups that are, that are highly elite already. So if you look at modern America, as I say, I haven't studied in detail uh, what's happening within the last uh, 10 years. But if you look at the people who are, are making the large sums now in finance, in uh, the internet, in computer technology, a lot of these people are actually being drawn from elite families within America. Uh, half of the Harvard graduating class each year is now heading to the finance industry uh, in New York. If you look at uh, doctors now and elite specialists, uh, these are still being drawn from these highly elite uh, families. And so, yes, there, you know, there, there, there's always in each generation large random shocks to uh, income. Uh, but just to take one example, Bill Gates, the richest man in the world now, he did not come from a lower class family. His father is a very successful attorney <laughs> in Seattle. Uh, he was a Harvard undergraduate uh, and so what's interesting, as I say, when you, when you look at the patterns over time is that the inheritance of wealth tends to be just as much within these traditional elite families as the inheritance of education or the inheritance of political position. Uh, and, and, and it's always the case. And so even though the book finds that there is this big persistence of status, there always are these random shocks that are coming in. But all we can say is that as much as 60% of the variation in social position in each generation is inherited, right? But that still leaves 40% that is, has a random component. True. So that allows for contingencies for individuals to wiggle out of, let's say, uh, the trap. But let's assume that this persistence uh, gets stronger because, let's say, America. America is drawing its elites very, very quickly and very early from testing in school. They pick in the, they're picking the smartest kids. The smartest kids are encouraged to go to uh, Eastern universities. They tend to marry each other. So that the, the persistence that you've picked up perhaps is accelerating uh, today. And if it accelerates today, perhaps it'll weld into an international class structure, which will have its own interests and may not necessarily be democratic. Your, your comment on that? Well, uh, so, so my comment is that um, what the book identifies is that the persistence of, of status is very strong, strongly driven by assortative mating. That is by people marrying people of very similar characteristics. And that the, what would cause a, an even further decline in social mobility would be if mating became even more assortative, right? And so there has been this fear that uh, in the 19th century, uh, women mostly did not go to college. And so people couldn't match up in terms of their educational qualifications as neatly as they can now, right? 
and that now the Ivy League colleges are not only educating people, but they're also serving as a marriage bureau <laughs> for the children of the intellectual elite in American society. But the interesting evidence is that actually there hasn't been any increase in the strength of that assortative mating. That even in the 19th century, uh, when women were not educated, we can see very strong patterns that men marry women of very similar social class and background. And they, and they marry into families that look very similar to their own families. And so the one kind of comforting thing I can say here is that there's, there's really no sign that the modern educational system is actually going to lead to a slowdown in social mobility because already, even in the pre-industrial era, uh, men and women were matching up in terms of characteristics uh, quite strongly. Uh, and so that particular dystopia, and so that's, as I say, if I, I go on and do this new work on dystopias, that would be a kind of an interesting avenue to explore be because another aspect of my book is it actually has a prediction that if you want to produce high status children, there's a formula for this. And instead of going to match.com, you should go to ancestry.com in terms of looking for a marriage partner. And we can actually predict which people are likely to transmit to their children high social status. And that if people really ended up believing this, they would be able to match up even more effectively. Uh, and so that, but, but it would actually just be a simple function of saying, don't look at the observed characteristics of your partner. You have to look at all of their relatives as well. And they contain the information about what's likely to be transmitted uh, to the children. Uh, yeah, so let go me, ahead. Let, let me uh, comment on that. But you made a comment in, in an earlier interview that elites from all over the world are being drawn to the United States. So now you have disparate elites with one common objective, which is uh, money and power, from all over the world coming to America. What kind of a prediction could you make? I don't think you, you made that one or looked at that one where the elites from various countries, which you, you proved the case for, now show up in one central place and they start interacting. What do you think might happen if you, would they stay in their own separate castes? Would they intermarry and have one generic huge capable elite actually residing in the, in the United States? Any comments on that? Well, as I said, the U.S. is in a very interesting position now, in part driven by the incredible success of U.S. universities. And so in my field, economics, almost all of the uh, best economists being produced now are actually drawn from outside the United States. Uh, and so uh, be, because all the people of talent internationally all end up in American graduate schools or end up teaching in American universities, and so I think that's happening across all fields, computer science, engineering, physics, medicine, about I think a third of all American doctors now actually are drawn from abroad. Uh, and so it is a very interesting uh, kind of a new situation uh, in the United States where you're importing a very high level elite from around the world. This group is going to intermarry. Uh, I think the, the barriers between Hindu and uh, Muslim and uh, Christian will become relatively unimportant in modern America. 
but that there will be this uh, elite uh, group that, uh, that that's kind of formed in the United States. And, and as I say, I think what it portends is that the U.S. could end up uh, as a society of kind of unusually sharp distinctions between its kind of social and intellectual upper class and uh, another much less advantaged uh, lower class. Uh, and uh, as I say, this would, and, and it will look much more like Brazil, like uh, South America in terms of the structure of the society and that, and that eventually there'll be a melding of all of the different groups within the United States, but we're talking of an eventually that is 300 to 500 years in the future. Okay, well, let's, let's argue that uh, because of the, the high, high elites are coming here now and the intermarry now, they're capable now of, in, in effect, influencing uh, their political agenda, financial agenda. Uh, why would they really care about democracy uh, when it's in their best interest to uh, feather their own nests. I mean, this is, uh, you know, elites throughout history are not sharers by, by inclination. And here you've got a powerful proof that uh, their interests, uh, their abilities, uh, are focused more on themselves than anybody, anybody else. And, and as Piketty is demonstrating, the accumulations of wealth are piling up so fast, and obviously they're in the hands of the elites, that uh, it's probably an un unsustainable situation within a generation or two, never mind 300 years, for, for this to play out. Any comments? I, I actually disagree that uh, elites tend to only uh, focus on their own interests. Okay. Uh, and so one of the interesting things, looking at the name study in England, for, for example, is that the leadership of the Labour Party, the party that wanted redistribution, uh, socialization, that ends also tended to be drawn from the traditional elites within British society. And so I think that you know, these groups are as likely to actually favor much more moderate and redistributive policies are, as are other elements uh, within American society. And, and it would be in their best interest uh, to do so, I would agree. Are they able to identify their right. best interest in an internationalization of interest as opposed to a national right. uh, well, view all, all of, I can say of is interest if, like if in you England? Look now, at, say, Bill Gates, he's a supporter of very liberal policies, and a lot of his money when he dies is likely to support social causes. If you look at Warren Buffett, he's already committed to giving away large amounts of his money. And so... Uh, what I think may happen is we'll face an America in the future where foundations <laughs> of the wealthy become very important players in American society. Uh, because as I say, there, there is a lot of indication, I mean, against Piketty, there's a lot of indication that uh, this super wealth, a, a lot of it, because also we have quite low fertility rates in modern society, that a lot of this money will actually end up in the end being devoted to public purposes. So I'm actually more optimistic than you in, in terms of uh, the, the fear of okay. about what about the creation of this super elite and the persistence of this super elite, what it will do to American society. Because actually, as I say, I think often such groups become the politically 
allied with policies of redistribution, socialization, aid for the less fortunate. Okay, well, let's argue uh, that certainly happened in the Roosevelt era in the United States, but that was unraveled starting in 1980, and, and, the, and, and the unraveling tendency doesn't show uh, yet the early signs, other than at the margin, let's say Gates and Buffett, who, who basically are big thinkers, generally it doesn't show uh, that tendency yet, and yet the uh, pressures on, on ordinary people are becoming intense within their own lifetime. So it may be a timing problem here, that what you say may ultimately be true, but we may not have a traverse time enough to make the Gates uh, Reformation uh, practical. Any comments on that? Well, well, one thing I would say is that, of course, the great mystery of modern societies is why the poor don't expropriate the rich. And one of the surprising features of, of modern uh, political systems is that uh, the poor typically have not chosen to pursue radical policies of redistribution. And, and, and yeah. Let me interject right there. How could they possibly, in this day and age, do that? There's no armaments capability within that group. Uh, they're, they're head fakeable by elites in terms of uh, written word, uh, you know, ideology. It would be a lot to ask ordinary people who are struggling for life to to have the wherewithal to mount an effective, uh, even verbal campaign against the way things are. We have seen periods such as, say, the 1950s, 60s, early 70s in Europe, where there were much stronger redistribution policies. I mean, Piketty himself uh, refers to this as kind of the golden age of redistribution. Only after a massive world war of destruction. After war, yeah. Yes. And, and so I think politically what will be interesting in future is if there is more of a perception of a polarization within American society and of a polarization of position and wealth and social status, whether that would in, in itself then lead to uh, political movements that would be much more focused on redistribution, right? That American ideology is that everyone has the capacity to ascend to the very top of the society, uh, whatever your origins, whatever your backgrounds, and that that's never been a reality in American society, but it's not been perceptible to people how limited their chances really are and how predetermined people's chances are at the point of their birth. And so the question would be, if it becomes more visible, more obvious, uh, these distinctions. And one of the things that can lead to that is when there are ethnic differences between successful and unsuccessful families. And then it becomes much more visible. So I think in America, there's always been much more visibility to poverty and wealth than in equivalent societies in Europe, where we can actually say, yes, you know, you've been poor, you've been poor for 300 years, it'll take hundreds of years before you get to the average. Uh, but these are not visible minorities within European society. And so I think another thing that will be interesting about the future of America is if we're headed into a period of increased inequality, it'll be an inequality that's, that's very visible uh, because of the, the ethnicity differences between many of the successful and unsuccessful groups uh, within the U.S.
Okay, but the ethnicity, but taking that point, let's compare Sweden where the ethnicity is the same and they've, they've come to an accommodation with all seg segments of society to sort of equalize uh, the differences that you've talked about. But in America, if you have the elites around the world joining up as a band of adventurers in one country, a multiplicity of elites whose best interests are served by, you know, aggregating wealth, and you have a society of, uh, of, of uh, a, a non-one-one-one group of uh, people like Sweden, but a diverse ethnicity, why should that uh, elite group at the top uh, really identify with, with anything in America that would uh, catch their interest? Well, one thing that I think uh, I have to respect here is uh, that uh, now we're getting into the area of political science right. and, and political thought, right. and, and that there are people who have much more expertise in these areas than, than I would have. And, and so all I all I can you know anything I say here is just uh, speculation, right? Right. Uh, and so as I say, I, I just don't know, right? I, I mean, I, th I think uh, America faces uh, uh, an interesting, uh, an uncertain future. Uh, I mean, one of the big decisions that will have to be made within a few years is how much to expand immigration into the United States of elites from the rest of the world. Right. There's a lot of pressure now to expand this immigration, that that will actually lead to even more social disparity within the United States, uh, persistent social disparity. But there's 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 a huge populations of talented people who are willing to come to the U.S., who want to come to the United States. Uh, uh, you know, we could take from China several million talented people in a few years. Uh, and uh in some sense, for U.S. society as a whole, that will be associated with faster economic growth, higher incomes. At, at the expense of everybody else. Right. Well, not not at an absolute expense, but, but you know, at, at relative expense in terms of people's relative social position would, would now uh, decline. So one of the interesting things is looking at the U.S. in terms of surname groups and looking at what were the elites and what were average and what were below average. It turns out that traditional white Protestant Europeans, now none of these groups are an elite within American society, right? Right. right. The new elites are all more recent immigrants. Uh, they include uh, in people like black Africans who've come recently from Africa, right? And so it actually cuts across racial grounds. Barack, Barack Obama is not a story of indigenous uh, kind of success uh, by African Americans. His father was an elite a member of an elite family from Kenya, and he, he represents that new, very successful group that's recently come from Africa. And so I think uh, these are interesting decisions that American society is, is going to have to make, uh, which is that what would be associated with liberal policies with regard to immigration and to economic growth would also have potentially significant social repercussions for many generations to come within the United States. And what has happened up till now is the US, I think the U.S. has been very successful in incorporating these immigrant groups, in creating a society that actually has relatively limited tension around redistribution and around uh, status, uh, in admitting into the universities people who have talent, irrespective of their background, 
Uh, and so, so far, as I say, this process has worked very well, uh, but it will lead to uh, a kind of interesting and challenging social structure in the future. And as they're not being versed in political science or social theory, I'm really not qualified to say what will that outcome be. All right. Well, uh, Dr. Clark, we're not interviewing social scientists of that type because we don't think they have all that much to say about this kind of issue. And, uh, and I, I just want to say to the audience who's watching this, you can see that Dr. Clark's two books are must-reads. Uh, and I would, I would put P P Piketty's book also in that. If there are three books to read as an educated person or trying to understand the trends in this, in this world, those are the three books to read. And hopefully Dr. Clark will write the dystopia version, the trilogy, for his first two. And we, 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 we at least will have the facts that bear on the problem finally. What we do with them, I think, uh, is a subject for political science and the political uh, process. And where this is going to end, I don't know. But I think uh, Dr. Clark has supplied two wonderful works in terms of educating the public if they read that. I think Piketty sums up the results so far of what's, what's happened. And, of course, I'll, just, I'll end it uh, uh, kind of on this note. Uh, Piketty uh, basically says that... Uh, Capital is accumulating in relatively few hands, the assumption being elite hands, that the growth rates in the future will not allow uh, that process of inherited wealth to be overcome. And without a redistributive capital taxes, uh, we're going to end badly. Any, any final comments on that and when we can end this? Um, the, the one thing I, I do want to say is that uh, I, I think Piketty is actually too pessimistic. Uh, and, I, and I think uh, this would be the subject of a whole other discussion. Mm -hmm. But I think uh, for a society like England, it's still the case that the share of property income is significantly less than on the eve of the Industrial Revolution. True. And that there's been actually very little sign over time that, that, that the share of wealth uh, tends to be have a natural tendency to increase, right? And so I think he has focused more on just the last hundred years, but as, a, as an even longer run historian, I would say if you widen that perspective to the last, say, thousand years, what you'd actually see is a surprising stability, mostly, of these shares. Uh, and so I, I think that uh, it's still an open question about whether that particular dystopia uh, is really in our future. Okay. All right, well, Dr. Clark, uh, uh, thanks for uh, being part of uh, our Smart Talk segments. It was wonderful. It was great. That's it for this edition of Smart Talk. In future discussions, we will be speaking with such leading economists as Paul Craig Roberts, who is the co-founder of Reagan Economics, Luigi Passanetti, a leading economist and one of my favorites, Darren Assam Liu, a professor at MIT, and one of the most cited economists in the world on economic growth. Please post your comments or suggestions on our website at www.henryjewardschool.org. And thank you for joining us. I'm Andrew Mazzoni.